Noon has yet to arrive, and the day is already a scorcher. Turning my car on prior to voyaging south, the thought hits me about each of my stops. Selected with purpose, both within the sense of this podcast and the framework of the region's past, present, and foreseeable afterward, my journey slows to a crawl when I find myself directed to following a truck on the wrong side of a surface street along the I-5 freeway. There's five minutes I preferred were not sacrificed. The interstate glides my sedan at a downward angle. I pass the second Los Angeles aqueduct, a 137-mile-long aqueduct carrying water from the Owens Valley to Los Angeles and contributing severely to the city's growth over the decades. Construction was supervised by William Mulholland, who also oversaw the St. Francis Dam's construction. Mulholland chose to move the location of a holding reservoir to San Francisco Canyon, a decision meant to be a backup resource and power supply in case something disrupted the aqueduct. His career as a major power broker in the region died along with 431 innocents following the dam's collapse two years after its completion in 1926. My interstate slouch makes quick time as I enter the city of San Fernando. In another life, this culturally vibrant location once was a small settlement grown just around Mission de San Fernando Rey. Seventy-seven years after the mission was established, and long after California exchanged ownership from Spain to Mexico to the United States, the first city of the valley, as it was called, emerged. What once relied on local ranches is now a sleepy, industrialized suburb with shrinking streets and a slight curtail thanks to the San Gabriel Mountains to the east. And yet for decades passed between San Fernando's initial organization and its incorporation within the state.
the heart shatters when it is understood who was brought to the mission and who came out. 3,126 entries of continuous baptismal records of gathered converts from the Indian villages in the geographically surrounding area, according to the Fernandino Tatavium Band of Mission Indians website, were established prior to and after the mission's secularization. Stripped from their traditions and pre-colonial way of life, San Fernando Indian families relocated themselves. According to the San Fernando Band of Mission Indians website, in 1962, with the assistance of the California Indian Rights Association, the tribe's then 78 members formally organized themselves as the San Fernando Mission Band under an elected president. San Fernando Band of Mission Indians is one of two tribal organizations whose ancestors once lived at Mission San Fernando. The other organization primarily represents families who remain in the San Fernando Valley. The San Fernando Band of Mission Indians does not possess formal tribal recognition by the United States. This sadly also applies to the Fernandino Tatavium. They have long sought for recognition, something with which was not fully understood up until recent years following a spat with a local high school and its use of indigenous paraphernalia with its mascot. Who would have thought entering a California mission would cost four dollars? A brisk jaunt from the haunted church is Brand Park, named after a local developer. What isn't? It encompasses a memory garden and a community center, and even incorporates two baseball diamonds. My arrival was disturbed by the presence of three SUVs belonging to the Los Angeles Police Department as they forcefully inspected a homeless encampment one of at least two in the park. An adjacent sign read, Special Enforcement Zone, beginning on and after Thursday, April 28, 2022. No person shall sit, lie, sleep, or allow items to remain in the public right-of-way within 500 feet of Brand Park Memory Garden 
15177 South Brand Boulevard. So close to God, yet so far from material salvation. A gold Nike shoe sits under an adobe overhang adorned with the official seals of Spain and the state of California. Swastikas graffitied on the wall left of the shoe are visible, as dead vegetation can be seen opposite them, all of which sits under thinning palm trees, which adorn the streets and resemble parts of Hancock Park and the Fairfax District down south. Chicken or egg, one would query. I glimpsed the outside of the mission before I realized the odd juxtaposition of my next stop. A commercialized shopping mall. Mission San Fernando was a last-minute edit to my travel to downtown. One day I'll return to walk through its walls and weep over those forced to conform to its idolatrous faith or face extermination. A weed whacker clears up the growth, peeking through the clay fencing of the park, adorned with the names of other missions. I glide closer to familiar sights as I approach Burbank. Once, this place was my home. A fellow podcasting compatriot does too, if you recall. Yet this is not my stop as I continue into a larger, boisterous area, changing in style. Just as I almost begin to feel confused. Is this Pasadena? Is this WeHo? I am reminded of some of my pre-COVID pandemic romps to this part of the region. My heart flutters 
with recognition. But my resolve grows cynical as recent events catalyze why I chose to go to this outrageously glamorous location. Pedestrians flood the area as I notice yet another developer's name adorning an upcoming intersection, which causes me to laugh ironically and agonizingly. Comedy is dead, so what is this? Who is this developer and why should anyone care? Rick Caruso is the developer behind the Americana in Glendale and The Grove. A billionaire, he is funding his own campaign to run for mayor of Los Angeles, flooding the airwaves with ads, promising he will protect abortion rights and clean up the city as its homelessness crisis grows and grows with dwindling signs of hope as branches of the city find newer and crueler ways to disrupt and dislocate the unhoused and communities of color ahead of the 2028 Olympic Games. Caruso said he would declare a state of emergency that deserves a true FEMA-level response that comes with federal, state, and local coordination and funds to quickly house those who are living on our streets. He suggests he will stop the waste and demand accountability and real results, requesting the state controller to immediately conduct a full investigation of all construction contracts related to homelessness housing and route out waste and fraud, as well as demand accountability. According to Knock LA, he has yet to build a single unit of affordable housing, and his personal actions contradict the obvious solution he proposes. He has also changed his party registration after a long history of supporting anti-democratic policies, including donating to the likes of Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, as well as making the largest campaign contribution of $110,550 to former Ohio Senator John Kasich, who signed a ban on abortions that take place after 20 weeks also according to Knock LA. He says he will end corruption at City Hall and unilaterally solve homelessness. But as we've learned from other businessmen who thought they could build walls to resolve our problems, it takes much more policy and compassion to stop the rising tides of homelessness and gentrification than by simply flexing the muscles of the LAPD, with which Caruso was president of the LA Police Commission, as well as to simply drain swamps. Simply, don't vote for a problem to solve problems.
there's the Barnes and Noble. You can't forget the fountain. Sinatra blares through the shopping center's outdoor speakers. There's no trolley as long as part of the complex of restaurants remains partially under construction. Plywood falls as construction workers call out to each other about the time. Katsuya is closed. Adjacent shops are painted over, promoting what's to come. Memories of love, much like some of the smaller establishments, don't survive as the crises of capitalism all reach singularity. I march, noticing a universal lack of masks. I circled the Americana, finding myself more alienated as I returned to the fountain to watch the rhythmic jets of water shoot into the sky as if in a dance with the endless Sinatra playlist some mall employee likely put on shuffle and repeat. I am hardly present for a whole half hour when I find a pay station for my parking stub. Two dollars. Two dollars going to Rick Caruso. Not how I imagined ending what I hoped to be my last trip to this place for a long, long, long while. It, and the Grove, will be viewed differently for he to win the general election in November. LA is in for a reactionary homecoming. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, the name Charles Bukowski comes as no surprise. A new fixture of the season, he is a literary figure who deserves more of a recognized analysis rather than the godlike universal praise 
he seems to receive from every lowlife, bon vivant, nihilist, hipster, and bad boy who wants to smoke, write, and get drunk. Born in Germany and raised in an abusive household, it took Bukowski decades before he began to be recognized, writing poems here and working a multitude of small jobs everywhere. The most notable and easily recognized of the small jobs was working as an employee for the United States Postal Service, arguably serving as the template for an autobiographical retelling in his debut 1971 novel, Post Office. I discovered a list of locations in Southern California where Hank either lived, visited frequently, or worked. A trip to the USPS Terminal Annex was originally axed, but sadly the hopes of entering Skylight Books were swiftly dashed. Traffic and the lack of a perfect left-hand turn I could aggressively make use of were each to my extreme detriment. But I wasn't far from Bukowski Court, where the old bastard lived. I stopped to initially notice a grand church adorned with a mural an American flag, and a Ukrainian flag. Nearly 100-day war in Eastern Europe can somehow be felt on this sleepy street, DeLong Prey Avenue. The church reads outside its walls, Nativity of BVM Ukrainian Catholic Church. I am startled before moving towards the church when a Serbian man behind a fence engages with me. He is wearing a hospital gown, and I don't know why. Beautiful church, isn't it? he asks. We then talk about what BVM stands for, and how the Cyrillic type next to the English lettering on the outside of the church is not an approximate enough translation. A quick Google search defined the acronym as Blessed Virgin Mary, despite his protests that the B looked like an S. We depart after he is nearly squashed by an automatic gate, allowing a car into the nearby housing community, and after he asks if I'm in the area looking to live there. For someone who said he lived here for about three decades, the name Bukowski does not register, given Bukowski died in 1994. The home itself, which you can easily walk by, is private property. Therefore, you find yourself walking in a circle, looking up and down the street until finally deciding it is time to continue.
page 18. But it was not to last. It came in the mail after about a week and a half of freedom. I was back on the cross again. My heart is again off-kilter. I know why, but won't say. Part of the final leg of this trip is approaching, and the once-excited realization of informing a fellow comrade in media about this bizarre connection is yet again obliterated upon my approach. That comrade is not who you think it is, as Dodger Stadium looms overhead. I drive up the hillside near Figueroa Terrace, scouting for a place to park my car and walk. I am weary as I look around. Oddly enough, I recorded not too far from here and shared countless passions with this said comrade. But this person is not why I am here, and they never will be for as long as I journey this close to downtown, whose skyline can easily be visible when you look to your left or to your right. Rather, it is the cinematic aspect of this neighborhood that has me getting close to a vile character's residence. Figueroa Terrace is the site of Lou Bloom's apartment in Nightcrawler. You got me. I had to check this out. No, don't call it a pilgrimage. If you're listening and visited the stairs in the Bronx, you don't deserve to cast any stones. As the TikTokers say, this is for the lols. How does this differ from visiting my alma mater's library and claiming you visited Starfleet Academy?
part of the film's allure has always been its portrayal of the city's underbelly, namely of a huckster making his way into careers he doesn't have set for himself. Is it odd to suggest that the great reshuffle may have been happening already in 2014 as it is in 2022 and most certainly beyond? The art deco, warm weather, palm trees, sloping hills, low-to-the-ground kiosks and restaurants and office buildings and all of the surrounding corporate-themed architecture, as well as a foreboding sense of fear and insecurity, as well as the dystopian sense of something's watching you, all make for a cinematic experience that is quintessentially Los Angeles but also oddly relevant. Even painfully so. It is at this moment that I am left wondering, is this the pinnacle of what I have gone to look for in my years of trying to understand this city, its people, and its history? Is this where I finally realize that there are some things that need to be let go in order for my best intentions of moving myself forward can persevere? It's a simple, weird, damn near therapeutic way of approaching such a bizarre quandary. That must have been word vomit, but surely you must realize that whatever the taxing experiences of the last two years have taught us is change is inevitable. Something else will be on the horizon, whether we plan it or it's unexpected. My simplest wish is that whatever it is, it takes me wherever I need to go, not where I want to go. At the same time, it needs to be sustainable. And if I can combine that with where I wish to go, be it here, this close to the city I was born in, or far, far away in a different state, 
It all depends. It's something I'm not going to know until I finally know it. But anyway, I stand looking over these houses with the Chinese lettering on each of the street names, and the feeling is not depressing when I think about the passions I've lost in the area or the times I have visited just for the hell of it. Instead, I'm reminded of that word I said earlier, singularity. No, not in any weird robotic sense. That is far from what I mean, but perhaps a sense of oneness. Again, not because of the cinematic history with regards to the area, merely the geography and being as close to the sky as I am. I keep walking. So high, so close to the sun. Icarus didn't need wings. He needed legs to get this close. My heart brushes off the memories, and I proceed back to my car. A drive through Chinatown would make for a more reverential Hollywood experience, eh, Jake? Alas, it's not on my map. One beloved location comes to mind, but my GPS suggests it will be closed when I arrive. Moving quickly became paramount. My mind wandered to my morning fear of facing the rush hour traffic as I returned to my slice of Mediterranean. The commute recycles more memories before dread strikes me. Dread for those who lived here. Stadium Way, not too far from another journalist friend's hometown, you know who, but an often discussed subject on the show. I'm reminded of stealing home and buried under the blue. The history of Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. As buried under the blue's website, will tell you, 
These are the three indigenous communities forgotten and wrongly evicted from their homes and land. All three of these communities were established before Dodger Stadium was built. For this reason, many members from the old communities reject them. The indigenous communities of the past, Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop, to our present-day indigenous communities are still suffering from gentrification and the lack of basic resources. We must learn from our past in order to build a better future tomorrow. 1,800 families in Chavez Ravine lost their homes to the city so the Brooklyn Dodgers could come here. Blame for part of the removal is to be directed to the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, a prominent actor in the forcible removal. Alex Villanueva would go along with such barbarity for it to happen today. Many of you who consider yourselves allies must be reminded as to why you became so in the first place. If ever there was a cause of importance, a local cause of importance, to be involved in and to consider yourself an ally, this ought to be it. Identity and commercialism, as one of my co-hosts is one to remind, must not make up the totality of the life any human makes for himself or herself. Instead, I say righting wrongs should supplant identifying with a brand. There's more to identifying yourself as an Angelino than associating it with something profitable. Time to go. Games make for bad commutes. Yet another realization hits me as I decide to enter my car and leave. Not far from here rests the Autry Museum of the American West. While my plan is not to walk inside and visit the various artifacts, paintings, firearms, and all else you can find in a previous episode, a different sense of singularity feels warranted. No. Not singularity. Not in this case. Serenity. Calm down, Costanzas.
I reach the parking lot, the large, loud sign for the Los Angeles Zoo in clear sight from where I'm sitting inside my car. Stepping out, I make my way closer to the adjoining park on the opposite side of the museum. In fact, it may well still be the museum grounds. As I walk, a family is watching a young girl practice her roller skates. Boy, is she killing it. Her younger sister on a scooter? Well, the same cannot be said, I'm afraid to report. I then approach Doug Hyde's Tribal Gathering sculpture, featuring five women representing the nations of the Southwest, Apache, Diné, Hopi, Pueblo, and Pima. The women look in all different directions. Today my head must have been turning in all of those directions, meandering my way to the City of Angels. But the women are not facing one notable direction, southwest. Over my shoulder rests Griffith Park, situated in the Los Feliz neighborhood of LA and covering 4,310 acres of land. Curated and sadly shrinking, the park is also home to the universally recognized Hollywood sign, which of course was once a way to promote housing in them their hills. The park is named after Griffith J. Griffith, the benefactor of yet another landmark and one very close to my heart. It is neither serenity nor singularity that draws me to the Griffith Observatory. As a humanist, it may well be the closest to being a church as it displays the numinous beauties of the cosmos to thousands, if not millions, of visitors each year. I have yet to return, as exile induced by the pandemic and other circumstances far beyond my control have kept me away. A visit is long overdue.
I continue walking at this convergence of nature, history, and the cosmos. What did this trip mean? Why take it knowing it was another day to drive around all of the typical sightseeing views that millions of people from across the globe take every day visiting here? What made me any different from a tourist? The Serbian man accused me of not living in the area, despite my saying I lived in Los Angeles County. Perhaps this pilgrimage was not just a way to present what this show has to offer in terms of commentary and reporting. Perhaps this was my way of asking my place of birth, what is next for me? As I already suggested, this could be a personal turning point. Such a claim, though, is far too early to even fathom. But a feeling can be far more memorable than a defined thought or memory, oddly enough. Ultimately, this was a sense to provide an authentic sound to this place we call Southern California. As you can imagine, it predominantly sounds a lot like a ton of cars barreling down the freeway at 90 miles an hour. As one of my co-hosts would likely suggest, that's simply the case.
It would be oddly self-serving for a podcast named after the fourth planet to end such an episode as this on something so cosmically connected to the vast world beyond our own. But what glamorous metropolitan city on Earth does not find itself communing with the stars? Let it not be out of character for me to remind us all the gorgeous words of Carl Sagan. There is a kind of psychological compound interest, even a small tendency toward retrenchment, turning away from the cosmos, adds up over many generations to a significant decline. And conversely, even a slight commitment to ventures beyond the Earth, to what we might call, after Columbus, the enterprise of the stars, builds over generations to a significant human presence on other worlds, rejoicing in our participation in the cosmos. For we are the local embodiment of a cosmos grown to self-awareness. We have begun to contemplate our origins. Star stuff, pondering the stars, organized assemblages of 10 billion 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 atoms considering the evolution of atoms, tracing the long journey by which here, at last, consciousness arose. Our loyalties are to the species and the planet. We speak for Earth. Our obligation to survive is owed not just to ourselves, but also to that cosmos, ancient and vast, from which we spring. You've been listening to Mars on Life. Look up our show on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Mars on Life Show and give us a follow. Tune in to the latest episodes and bonus content from our show wherever podcasts are found, including Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel to like and subscribe our work. This show's artwork, Happy Mars, is by Zachary Erberich, while our intro and outro is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. If you keep going, you'll make it to Mars. <laughs>